This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. This week, our co-founders Justin Higgins and John Gunnison sat down to discuss some issues in the news, including big policy packages that are currently under consideration in Congress and the personalities they hinge on. For more information and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Good evening. Good evening, Mr. Gunnison. There has been a ton of stuff that has happened in the last week in the world of politics, hasn't there, Ben? Indeed, there has. Keeping an eye on some international events, some of which involve the United States. You know, what's going on in Sri Lanka is quite remarkable. But also, Biden is taking his first visit to the Middle East as president. So that's something, of course, I'm keeping a close eye on. Yeah. And in addition to his trip over to the Middle East, John Bolton, former National Security Advisor, yesterday admitting to planning coups or admitting maybe inflating his role a little bit on CNN, talking about committing coups and planning coups. We've had another January 6th hearing. We've had Steve Banning get his butt handed to him in court. We've had a lot of criticism of Merrick Garland in the DOJ through a New York Times piece, and then all the talking heads, some former prosecutors on TV. And maybe one of the most important things, potentially a new round of hearings for January 6th set up at the end of August, which politically would be good, and we can get into that. But then also, there's been a resurgence of the Build Back Better initiative, a skinny version. Well, the first thing that we need to talk about is the UK Conservative Party leadership contest. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Let's talk about the United States. Justin, I know that you are our Capitol Hill insider, having worked as a legislative assistant for a number of years and have a pretty good grasp of how the sausage gets made in Washington, the legislative process, so to speak. As they used to say in that uh, school, school has rock video. I almost said school of rock video, how a bill becomes a law. Am I right? So we've got the man himself with us. We can get a good view from you on what's happening with this reconciliation bill. And you can tell us how we should interpret the clues that we're seeing from some of the political reporting. Yeah. And I I really want to underscore this. There's been thousands, probably tens of thousands of legislative assistants now. Yeah, sure. I learned a little bit working for a backbencher doing that, but I really did learn the most from the unique position of being a political appointee for the governor of Puerto Rico during Hurricane Maria when the Republicans controlled the White House, the Republicans controlled the Senate, and also the House, because there's also been a lot of committee staff and they have more influence than the legislative assistants. But in that process, I got to work hand in glove with both Mitch McConnell's Senate appropriators, the Democratic Patrick Leahy's Senate appropriators, and then the Democratic and Republican House appropriators to really see how this all is done. It gave me a unique view that most LAs don't get. And while I'm divorced from Capitol Hill right now, I can at least understand the process a little bit and the political machinations that's getting into it. So Build Back Better was prescribed dead because of Joe Manchin, because of inflation. However, recently, it's begun to pick up a little bit more steam. And more specifically, there's been rumors that there potentially could be some climate change, tax reform, and prescription drug negotiations that ultimately come into one plan and are passed. Now, all of this depends on Joe Manchin again. And any formula for passing a bill will need to have 50% of that 
money that is being saved go to deficit reduction to deal with inflation. This is Joe Manchin's words, folks. He thinks that deficit reduction will deal with inflation. Um, so let's quickly outline what's what we know has happened. There's been a tentative deal on prescription drug price negotiations, which the CBO scored, I think, two days ago, and it's come out that it will save over 10 years, $287 billion. So I don't want to bore everybody with the details, but this is the part of the bill that is potentially locked in and could, if everything else falls apart, go through it alone. What would this do? What would it mean? It means that the US would now have power to negotiate how much they're going to pay for select drugs for Medicare beneficiaries. This is huge. This is the first time in history that the US government will be putting price controls on pharmaceutical companies and preventing any type of runaway spending. Again, it's said to save potentially $287 billion on 10 years. This would be the first step in getting our healthcare costs under control. It would be used as precedent for the lowering of drug prices across the board, and it would obviously set as the foundation for future legislation. In addition, this bill has the closing of a very important loophole. It's called the HHS Secretary Loophole, which basically means that without this provision of the bill, if a Republican administration came in, they were cozy with the pharmaceutical companies, they didn't like drug price negotiations, from Medicare, then the secretary could basically make it so that the HHS doesn't actually negotiate that vigorously to bring down prices. This legislation cuts that out. And, and then the final thing is, starting in 2023, it will cap seniors' drug costs under Medicare at $2,000 each year. Right now, it could be $10,000, $100,000 theoretically. And then finally, there'll be some premiums to help seniors with their premium and copay costs. So that's the overarching prescription drug plan that'll save close to $300 billion. And John, that's pretty much agreed upon. So Justin, let me ask you a legislative process question. Who are the people who are actually doing the physical and technical drafting of these bills? I'm curious how many of them might be JDs. In the recent Supreme Court term, we had this ruling West Virginia versus EPA, that said that a lot of the administrative powers that Congress had delegated to executive agencies were not clear enough in the way that they had been written. They weren't explicit enough about which powers they had given. And thus, these administrative agencies had a lot less discretion legally than they had previously before this decision. And I'm thinking about how in a bill like the one we're describing that might give the HHS more powers to put price controls on prescription drugs, if the drafters of this bill are going to have to do it with this EPA versus West Virginia decision in mind. So who are the sorts of people that are actually writing the bill and how qualified are they to handle those kinds of legal landmines? So each bill and each committee that has jurisdiction will operate things a little bit differently. But generally speaking, and I think this is what we're seeing here, is you'll have the leadership staff. So it's really going to be Leader Schumer. And then <laughs> you could say Leader Manchin. They're sitting down and they're negotiating top line bullets. Their staff and they have lawyers on staff will work with committee staff to get the legislation drafted. 
the committee staff has, you know, Harvard JDs and Yale JDs on their staff, but they will also a lot of the time rely upon CRS, which is the Congressional Research Service. John, if you were, you, you remember this from your intern days. What happens is depending on how big the bill is and how short of a time window they have to write it, CRS will be leaned on more heavily and the review process of every single line won't be necessarily as thorough as possible. Obviously, members never pretty much read all of these bills. But at the end of the day, yes, lawyers will be reviewing this. They will be interpreting the legalese to Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer. And from there, the bulk of the drafting will be done through this nonpartisan research service, which is just stock full of lawyers. To your point, though, there are mistakes made when there's just, when you have a 10,000, 5,000 page bill and you have a week for people to review it, things get through the cracks. And, and the way this stuff is written, I'm sure you know, it's really arcane, legal, esoteric. So it takes a long time for somebody who isn't a lawyer, who isn't versed in the specific law that is being written to actually understand this stuff. Yeah, it's interesting because the common imagination of what a Capitol Hill staffer is, it tends to be young person, 30 years or younger, bachelor's degree, educated, underpaid, under-resourced, understaffed. And we think about how it's Congress's job to write these pieces of legislation that affect all of us in the most powerful, wealthiest country in the world. Um, it really is quite a bit of responsibility. But I suppose from what you're describing, you know, the committee staff is a completely different world than the members' staff. They, the sorts of people that you see depicted on Veep, those aren't the people who are writing the laws. It's the committee staff. And this is a completely different character well, of personnel. You and I know some committee staff that would fit very well into Veep so, or <laughs> former committee staff. So, I mean, it's a wide-ranging plethora. But yes, they are. they tend to be a little bit older than 30. They tend to have institutional knowledge. But you did bring up the EPA stuff. And that's actually very important. So the prescription drug pricing is is relatively done. It's something that everybody can agree upon. The question is whether or not we add climate change and tax reform into this bill. So you touched on the EPA ruling. One of the main areas where Build Back Better fell apart, but Manchin is negotiating with Senator Tom Carper, who's the Committee of Jurisdiction. So that's why I just vaguely said committee staff last time, because there are so many committees involved in everything else, was methane emissions and capping methane emissions and potentially fining companies if they don't abide by EPA regulations. Now, not to get too far into it, but we actually talked about this with the CSIS Energy folks as way back, like a year ago, as one of the main pieces of the Biden climate change agenda. And this fell apart because the EPA created a regulation saying that companies have to abide by certain methane emissions. Democrats wanted to also fine companies that didn't abide by these methane emissions. The Supreme Court ruling now kind of throws into question the EPA's power. So what you're potentially going to have happen is there needs to be a compromise because that's still outstanding, but it's potentially going to be where if the company doesn't abide by the EPA regulation, that's when they get fined. And that could potentially alleviate, ameliorate Joe Manchin's concerns. The other areas where there is a little bit of negotiation that is outstanding is Democrats want tax credits for electric cars. Think about it. The folks that buy $40,000, $50,000 Teslas, even more, the electric Mercedes, expensive cars. And Joe Manchin's like, we can do tax credits, but I'm not going to give a giveaway 
to wealthy people. And I personally agree 100% with Joe Manchin. We don't need to be giving evil billionaires like Elon Musk taxpayer funded dollars to sell his cars when it's going to be people making $250,000 a year that are reaping the benefits of this. So while Manchin's okay with tax credits, it's probably going to have some resolution of means testing. I would hope that tax credits don't go to anybody making over 100000 a year at least. The other sticking part is tax credits for wind and solar companies. So this is, again, it's not the coercive measure of climate change policy like the methane emissions could be, but this is more the carrot than the stick, where if you're a solar or wind producer, most Democrats, all Democrats want to just give you direct payments, direct subsidies for what you're doing and and the greenhouse gas emissions that you are lowering. Joe Manson's like, I am not for paying large energy companies money directly to produce energy. It just doesn't make sense to give away these hard-earned taxpayer dollars. So some type of compromise could come out where instead of just paying all these companies one-offs, you're just paying these nonprofits. So all of that could result in 300, 350 billion in savings. If you remember from our beginning, the prescription drugs is roughly going to save 300 billion. The energy is going to spend 300 billion. So that's a net zero. Anything that happens, 50% of the spending needs to go towards deficit reduction. So now, John, we're left with $300 billion of money that needs to go to deficit reduction. So I suppose that if you want to reduce the deficit, you've basically got two pretty straightforward options. You can cut spending or increase revenue. And those are both things that are appealing at a time of inflation in the US economy, right? Because the interest is in slowing down demand. Right now, the demand for consumer products is too high for the supply in the market. There's too much money and not enough stuff and too much interest in buying stuff. (laughs) And that's why we're seeing prices increase to the extent they have, complicated by all kinds of supply chain bottlenecks and so on, the pent up demand from the pandemic, how low interest rates have been. But also this taxation matter. I suppose by increasing taxes, you would probably do something to address inflation, wouldn't you? Because you'd be driving down demand for a lot of these sorts of products. I suppose that's probably a difficult argument to really communicate as a political policy matter, because generally the consumer is upset about inflation because it's hurting them financially and increasing taxes does the same thing. Even though it could be a means to the end of lowering inflation, it certainly would be. It's not an easy pill to swallow, is it? So I suppose that that's probably not something that they've really discussed as they're communicating. It's going to be really difficult, and I'm not a tax expert, so I'm just going to list off the provisions that are being debated and supported by Manchin and the money that it could save. So we're at $300 billion savings from prescription drugs, $300 billion potentially spending from climate change. There's also $200 billion that needs to be spent, very likely, to extend Obamacare subsidies, make them permanent that were originally widened during the pandemic. It just gives more people better access to healthcare. So now we're at a $200 billion deficit where we need to now come up with $500 billion in spending. It favors a 3.8% tax on wealthy individuals and couples who earn more than $400,000 or $500,000 for the couples. And that will save roughly $200 billion. There'll be another $200 billion saved by imposing a new tax on pass-through income, which I don't know what that is. I think it's corporations and accounting tricks and kind of cracking down on that. 
So now we're at $200 billion in saving. We still have another $300 billion that we need to get to. That's where it gets a little funky. The White House has math that I don't know if Joe Manchin supports, but they argue that by cracking down on tax cheats, cracking down, and that is the most wealthy among us, that there is $400 billion that could be saved just naturally by the IRS doing their job. That would obviously get us to where we need to go. The only stick up here in addition to everything not being finalized, it's still being a moving ball and moving boat, is moderates from Hawaii, Ed Case, New Jersey, Gottenheimer. There's a few other states, Nevada, Susie Lee. They are adamant, and there's enough of them to sink this bill, that they will not support any tax reform without this SALT provision, which allows for the deduction for basically wealthy individuals on state and local taxes from their federal taxes. So that's kind of where we're at, John. It's all in the air. Everything's being discussed except for prescription drugs. That's the thing that could potentially move forward. Yeah. So I I remember hearing quite a bit about this SALT issue and it's SALT, state and local tax, right? SALT, SALT, state and local tax. And I think that this is kind of an interesting one. This became an issue, especially during the TCJA, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was the only real major piece of domestic policy legislation that came out of the entire Trump presidency. It was mostly focused on decreasing the corporation tax because the US corporation tax had historically been well above the competitor economies, lowering it from about 30 to, I think, 21%. Is that correct? And so um, in order to do this, They wanted to do it through this reconciliation process, the same process that this piece of legislation will go through, uh, which says that you can get around 60 vote cloture, the filibuster, as it's sometimes called, if you pass tax and spend measures that don't increase the budget deficit outside of a 10-year window. It's a very strange mechanism, but it gives you a window into the arcane Senate rules. And part of how they were able to fit this massive corporation tax cut into that 10-year window of deficit neutral was to eliminate this tax deduction because that increased the revenue. So it helped balance the cuts. And this, I think, has been kind of an interesting controversy because the arguments against a deduction for state and local taxes are pretty compelling. I mean, because essentially it's the federal government subsidizing a lot of spending in these in these states by incentivizing the states to put their tax higher than they need to. It also reveals Congress at its most parochial, right? You mentioned that the group of members that are protesting the elimination of the salt deduction are generally members from these high-tax states. And it's perfectly sensible. It makes sense. I mean, they're advocating the interests of their constituents, which are very clearly to maintain the salt deduction. But it does reveal that so often the positions that these members will take on these matters of national importance are so clearly driven by the rather narrow economic interests of their constituents. I mean, that's how the system is designed, but it can sometimes get in the way of sensible policymaking at a national scale, can it? It can, and and many viewed the Trump tax because it's a direct attack on Democrats because most of these states are blue states. And I don't want to be cynical. So by the way, Trump tax cuts 35% down to 21% for corporate. Okay. Yeah. I misspoke. I said 30. Yeah. I don't want to be cynical here, 
but I'm going to be a little cynical here. The members that are discussing this, like Gottenheimer, Lee, Mickey Sherrill, those three, they're well-off individuals. They're in states that are impacted. All their friends are impacted, and they're likely to lose their seat in Congress. So the question really is how much of this is helping their constituents and how much of this is maybe helping themselves, maybe doing something for when they go to their dinner parties. They get slapped on the back. Ha ha, nice job, Josh Gottenheimer, from all his millionaire friends. And, you know, when he tries to get a board seat on a pharmaceutical company or something. So that's the question. I think there's probably a a way forward. If there isn't a way forward, then Manchin will just say, screw you. We're going to do the pharmaceutical stuff because he just doesn't like to play these games. Last thing I'll say, playing games. There's a bipartisan USICA bill, which is basically a China Competition Act, and it is bipartisan support. It is a version has passed the Senate with both Republican and Democrat support. A version has passed the House. Now they're conferencing. So to ultimately get something passed, what needs to happen is the the Senate has like four or eight members. The House has four or eight members. They negotiate and they reconcile the differences between the two bills. They ultimately create something that they can both agree on, and then they both pass those bills again. What is happening right now is Mitch McConnell, just like the progressives did with the infrastructure bill, they held the infrastructure bill hostage saying you need to vote on Build Back Better. Mitch McConnell is saying, if you pass this prescription drug, green energy, and tax reform bill, or any version thereof, we're not going to pass this China Competition Act, which has wide bipartisan support. So it's just very important to realize that the main impact is people are struggling to buy cars, whether new or used, computer prices are surging, phone prices are surging. Uh, In this bill, while doing a lot of other things, sanctions on China for cybersecurity issues, uh, $190 billion of investment to enhance our advanced manufacturing and supply chain, it also has $54 billion that'll go directly to US chip manufacturers for semiconductors. So it's a really important thing. All the companies want it passed from Apple to Intel to car companies, and McConnell's kind of holding it hostage. I think what could theoretically happen is Nancy Pelosi could say, screw you, we're going to go with Joe Manchin, Schumer, we're going to pass this Build Back Better skinny. I'm just going to take the little Senate version of that bill that passed. I'm going to pass it through the House. Republicans can't vote on anything at that point. That's not very likely. What's likely to happen is Build Back Better, Skinny, some version thereof passes. Still going to be a hard uphill battle to pass that. And then Republicans probably maybe fold on their bluff because this is something that's popular for them and potentially good for the country. So, John, I know we got deep into the legislative maneuverings, these summaries of these bills that people probably aren't hearing about in the news, but our show is meat and potatoes and we kind of leave the dessert for later on. I think that that's a good type of legislative overview. Now we can get into some of the more fun stuff, maybe. If we've been getting into the weeds a bit on the policy aspects of it, Let's look at something very superficial that's related to this whole process. And that's, what are they going to call the bill? It's gone through a few different names. At certain points, they were just calling it our reconciliation bill, which isn't a very useful way to communicate, to message the benefits or detriments of this law. Then they wanted to build back better. But at this point, that terminology is mostly associated with the lumbering legislative process around this project. And it's also substantially changed since then, as you've described. So maybe that name won't be suitable anymore. Uh, Have you got an idea for what we're actually going to call this law when it happens? 
if and when. So it's the Endless Frontiers Act was like very, very abstract. Like, what the hell is this? Like you're saying this one, USICA, it's United States Innovation and Competition Act. That's what it's going to be named. That's what they're doubling down on. Oh, sorry. I'm referring to the Reconciliation Build Back Better. <laughs> what, what are we going to call that one now? That That's a very good question. Build Back Better. What a stupid name. That actually comes from the international UN playbook of building back better after disasters. And then Puerto Rico, when I was working for them, we created a $94 billion request from Congress after Hurricane Maria hit. We called it the Build Back Better plan. So it's not like this, you know, it's it's a really lame name from unimaginative communications people that Biden has clearly surrounded himself with. I didn't even mention that Dr. Jill Biden apologized for potentially coming off as prejudiced for her taco remarks. I don't know what they're going to call it, John. The Mansion Back Better Bill? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it should be named after Mansion at this stage because um, it really is something that he's had so much influence on. But yeah, I was saying that um, for some period of time, they're just calling it, this is our reconciliation bill. Reconciliation. There's reconciliation bills quite often. The TCJA was a reconciliation bill. I mean, it's not a very good way to describe it or to communicate to the public what it's about. Obamacare was a reconciliation bill. Yeah. The Build Back Better, like I was saying, it, it can't be a very good name at this point because at this point, it's mostly associated with the lumbering drafting process. When you hear about Build Back Better, you think about the frustrating headlines about Joe Manchin and all of that. So they'll have to come up with something. Maybe you can. I mean, you're the master communicator here. You could think of a really good <laughs> name other than Manchin Back Better. Off the top of my head, something like the Affordable Prescription, Affordable Medication <laughs> Bill. I don't know. There's so much they can do with it. You'll have to try to get climate, drugs, and taxes all into one concept. But you can't call it drugs. Yeah. Because it's just going to be a Democrat bill. And you, you don't want the far right crazies like Lauren Boebert saying, oh, the Democrats want to give illicit drugs to American citizens for cheaper. Because <laughs> you never know. Yeah. She might say that. I would respond to that and say, oh, but that's not what this is about. But then, you know, I remember death panels and a few other things. So <laughs> it's never really stopped the opposition. So let's move on to the January 6th hearing. And specifically afterwards, there was an interview between Jake Tapper and I guess CNN contributor now, John Bolton. Bolton's always a smug prick to, to lack a, a better, more diplomatic term. And he came off very smug. And first, he said this was actually something he said second, but that the Republican Party doesn't have an authoritarianism problem. And I find that very hard to believe, especially with a lot of the National Review writers we've had on, for example. Charles C.W. Cook said they have a collective action problem in the Republican Party and that if an authoritarian wants to take the reins, then there would be an authoritarian problem. And then you look at the laws that DeSantis is passing in Florida, in a lot of cases, which is just targeting corporations. I'm not saying he's an authoritarian, but I'm saying that that's misuse of government power that a lot of conservatives agree with. But Bolton basically shot that down, said it was offensive to even suggest so, despite the Republicans actively trying to whitewash January 6th. Then Bolton himself, it felt like, tried to whitewash January 6th because he basically told Jake Tapper that... It wasn't a coup attempt by Trump because he was stupid and lazy. 
John Bolton, a former U.S. diplomat and one-time national security advisor to former President Donald Trump, on Tuesday told CNN he'd helped plan attempted coups in foreign countries. Bolton made the remarks in response to accusations that Trump pushed a multi-pronged effort to overturn the results of the 2020 U.S. election in a last-ditch and potentially illegal bid to remain in power. Asked about this allegation, the former Trump advisor suggested on Tuesday the 45th president was simply not competent enough to execute a, quote, carefully planned coup d'etat, adding, quote, as somebody who has helped plan coups d'etat, not here, but you know, other places, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. Bolton served as Trump's national security advisor in 2019 when Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido called on that country's military to oust President Nicolas Maduro, claiming a recent election was illegitimate. Bolton supported Guaido. I can tell you there's a lot going on beneath the surface. The opposition is in constant contact with large numbers of uh, admirals and other supporters uh, within the Maduro administration. But Venezuela's military stuck with Maduro, who remained in power. Pressed on Tuesday by CNN anchor Jake Tapper to elaborate, Bolton said he would not get into specifics and did not mention Venezuela, but said, quote, it turned out not to be successful. Many foreign policy experts have over the years criticized Washington's history of interventions in foreign countries, but it is highly unusual for U.S. officials to openly acknowledge their role in stoking unrest in foreign countries. So I want to start there, John. Can you get into maybe delineating between a failed coup and a successful coup, a coup when you have power and a coup when you're a band of outsiders trying to gain power? Are there any differences there, distinctions, or just do you have to be smart to attempt a coup? About the difference between being in power and being out of power when you're trying to seize power illegitimately or grasp on a power illegitimately. It is one of terminology. There's another term that's used if you're the incumbent when you're trying to do this, but it's not. I, I don't even know the word at the top of my head. It's a, it's a more esoteric term. It's got an auto globe or something like that. In the common parlance, the word coup has kind of evolved to encompass those seizures of power illegitimately once you're already in power. And the way that we describe the Trump attempt to do so, you know, maybe a putsch would be more accurate term for January 6th itself, but the whole process since the election of trying to illegitimately hold on to power, you know, we could call it a coup and it would be understood what we mean. Sounds like tomato, tomato to me, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So first, I just want to respond to what really caught the headline, which was Bolton saying, I've planned coups. I was going to save that for next. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's just address that one quickly. I think that this was a bit of self-mythologizing from John Bolton. When he was asked what he was talking about, he used the example of Venezuela. This was all in public reporting that the U.S. was supporting Juan Guaido's efforts to seize power when Nicolas Maduro, the incumbent president, appeared to have illegitimately run an election to hold on to power. He was an authoritarian, you know. And it's worth saying that Virtually all of the South American countries did recognize Guaido as being the legitimate leader of Venezuela at that time. The attempt by Guaido to actually become the de facto leader of Venezuela failed, but I think it was widely known that the U.S. was supporting that effort. To characterize that as a coup planning from John Bolton, I'm not really sure. 
So you're not buying that John Bolton was standing at the whiteboard and drawing up the plans and picking up the names and picking up the arms to send and the levers to pull. And he has his big mustache with his white science coat on. And he's like, we're going to plan a coup today, Mr. Gunnison. A little bit of horse shit in there. (laughs) There is a photo of John Bolton that I remember seeing at the time in front of a map of Latin America. And it was (laughs) countries colored in blue if they supported Guaido as the legitimate leader. And countries colored in red if they supported Maduro as the legitimate leader. So, yes, it was with whiteboards. That sounds like diplomacy to me. <laughs> Coloring lines on the map. But yeah, I think that John Bolton has always tried to cultivate this image of himself as, you know, a Henry Kissinger-esque uh, grand schemer in world politics and someone who understands and appreciates the use of hard power and subversive power. So... I'm not surprised that he's bigging himself up a little bit in that way. And maybe there's something more that he's referring to that we're not aware of. Maybe, but I also think that he was a fool. He did danger to the United States by coming out proudly boasting that he was planning coups on behalf of the U.S. government, specifically because when you have the freaks and weirdos like Glenn Greenwald try and undermine the January 6th committee and try and whitewash the Trump crimes and try and just blame Democrats for shining a light on this. He's then in his next breath going to uh, justify his whitewashing by saying, look, you have John Bolton on CNN saying he committed a coup. These are the type of people that are trying to take down the Republican Party. They're the deep state. They're the establishment. And now they're with the liberals. And he's just going to use this in a messed up way that makes no sense to undermine. And then internationally, you're going to have folks say, look at when when they're dealing on a more serious note, when they're although that is serious, that's misinformation, that's information warfare. You're going to have folks negotiating with the US who will point to this specifically in negotiations and say, how can we trust you? You have him, this guy saying this. Yeah, I mean, of course, this sort of comment is catnip for those who want to depict the United States as a nefarious actor in world affairs. And, you know, there are examples that are perfectly legitimate, well-documented examples of the United States participating in the overthrow or attempt to overthrow of governments, you know, in Panama and Haiti and so on, uh, in Iraq, famously. Uh, so certainly there are examples of this. And what Bolton makes this kind of casual, offhand, smiling reference to overthrowing governments abroad. It's very easy for countries that hope to to pick the United States negatively and criticize the United States to look at this as evidence for the prosecution, so to speak. You know, it is funny how these sorts of comments can be built up to be something a bit larger and more serious when they're said in an unserious context, in an unserious way. And the example that I that comes to mind for me is when Donald Trump as a candidate said that Obama created ISIS. And really what he was saying to any international listener was the United States government created ISIS. And so Hassan Nasrallah, who is the head of the Lebanese organization Hezbollah, you know, seized on this very easily and said, look, a major politician in the United States is admitting that the United States was behind Daesh, Hezbollah, who are fighting against Daesh, who are a Shia group in Lebanon, who have always, you know, been able to use Sunni extremists um, as, you know, an enemy of theirs. They're involved in fighting against uh, Daesh, and they're saying, "Look, it's the U.S. 
that created this organization, these terrorists are back by the US. A major American politician admitted it. When Trump said that, he said it without really much thought, without really much of a theory of the case. It was just an offhanded almost joke, but it can be used as propaganda. He said it, and my job at the RNC was to create facts to support it. Literally, I had to create research and you know take it out of context and blast it out to reporters. Your job in that sense was quite similar to Hassan Nasrallah's, wasn't it? <laughs> I wouldn't go. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds similar from the way you're describing it. Trying to create evidence to support the claim the United States had created Daesh. The other aspect of what Bolton said I did want to respond to. Before you do that, John Bolton just went on about seven hours ago, went on the esteemed TV channel Newsmax, and he doubled down saying that he wasn't going to get into specifics, but he thinks that there are a lot of snowflakes out there that don't understand what you need to do to protect the United States. So he really did double down. Well, I suppose he knows his audiences very well because with Jake Tapper and CNN, he was able to drop a a seed of curiosity. And then with Newsmax, he uses the term snowflake. So (laughs) he's very good at at getting publicity. Yeah, he's very well practiced in, in the media. That was how Trump noticed him and made him the national security advisor, was seeing him as a pundit on Fox. But he hated that mustache. I did see speculation. You mentioned the Haiti coup that Bolton could have been more so referring about that, but I don't want to get into it. Let's just move on. No, what I mentioned Haiti. I was not talking about, just to be very clear, I was not talking about current recent events. I was talking about no prior decades. I want to respond to the other aspect of what Bolton said, which was that you have to be brilliant to do a coup. And I thought that this was ridiculous. And I've talked about this before on this program. Justin has heard me talk about this a lot. But I think that this is just such a misunderstanding of threats to national security. And it's disappointing that someone who is a national security advisor and a widely sought after commentator in national security would talk this way. Because the characterization, the understanding in the popular imagination of threats as being more acute or only acute when they're planned by intelligent people is really wrong and also helps build up the myth of autocracy and the uh, glamour or appeal of autocracy in a way that's actually itself quite dangerous. There is a stereotype, an archetype in the popular imagination that autocrats are brilliant and efficient, that they're great managers. (laughs) And this helps create the mystique around autocracy. The reality is the opposite. Autocrats are usually lacking government know-how, policy expertise, and they're also usually very inefficiently run and managed, partly because of all of the endemic corruption in those sorts of regimes or those sorts of approaches to government. When you've got a kleptocracy, a corrupt state, you are not managing public services in a capable, efficient way at all. That's quite the opposite. That's one of the that's why living in an autocracy is so bad. So I think that building up the idea of the autocrat as being by definition brilliant is quite dangerous. The other thing I want to say is that it, yeah, like I said, really already in a variation. It's not true. And I think that really has to be emphasized. So if someone like Bolton is in a position where they need to evaluate national security threats, they shouldn't believe that these threats only come from intelligent people. I mean, there's just a misunderstanding of 
danger. You have to be brilliant to maintain a country and to build a country. You do not have to be brilliant to destroy one. In fact, destruction is almost inevitable when you're not brilliant. It's a natural byproduct of the absence of brilliance. And to execute the overthrow or destruction of a regime does not take Machiavellian engineering. Look at what is going on right now in Sri Lanka, where huge groups of protesters stormed the presidential palace and and took down the entire government of that country. I mean, in response to incredible record of mismanagement. But this was relatively, apparently, spontaneous mass protest event. Ordinary people jumping over the fence, storming the presidential palace. I mean, if you look at the videos of what's going on, would you say that all these people involved, they had to be geniuses? You know what I mean? I mean, you can look at so many of these examples, including the ones that are happening right now on the news today, and you can see how passion and fervor, spontaneity, anger, these are the sorts of things that can lead to these events, just like what we saw on January 6th, really. My point is that brilliance is certainly not in any way a prerequisite to the destruction of a state, the overthrow of a government, and looking at examples of this occurring again and again, you'll see that. Yeah, I think it was just an arrogant, narcissistic comment where Jake Tapper pushed back on Bolton, and instead of actually arguing the point from a logical position of reasoning, he fell back on his personal experience to buttress his argument which everybody knows you don't do that to win an argument. Only an asshole says, yeah, well, I'm, I've worked in Congress, so I know what I'm talking about, how to pass legislation. That doesn't win an argument. That's not reasoning. Um, that's just falling back on credentials. And I, he probably made up these credentials, to be honest. Yeah. Like I said, it exposes him as being someone who really probably shouldn't be listened to and evaluating At national all. security threats. I mean, John, I, people knew this about John Bolton though, right? I mean, this is, again, as we're reevaluating Vladimir Putin in the wake of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we again have to question the myth of the genius autocrat. I mean, Putin was an excellent example of how this image had cemented in the popular imagination. I mean, Putin was always depicted in the media as being someone who was always one step ahead of the West, 4D chess, a genius a brilliant master strategist. As we're seeing what's happening in Ukraine, it exposes the truth, which was that Putin is deranged. He's paranoid. He follows obsessions way further than is appropriate or sensible. And the absolute destruction that's occurring in Ukraine and the mass suffering and misery and displacement is a consequence not of strategic genius, but of idiocy. Idiocy is more dangerous than genius, than brilliance. And I, I will keep repeating this every time I hear somebody like John Bolton, who's meant to be a key expert evaluator of national security threats. They keep propagating this enormous misunderstanding of human events. The last thing I wanted to hit on was there is 
I think it's next Thursday during primetime, is the final January 6th hearing of this series. It was originally scheduled that the hearings would end, I think, in June. Then they were pushed into July, and then people thought that this hearing, which was supposed to take place tomorrow evening, would be the last one of the committee. Hugo Lowell, friend of the show, he's over at The Independent, he just recently broke that the committee is discussing whether or not to hold a second series of hearings beginning at the end of August. So you would assume the second series of hearings would run at least through September and maybe even into October. Now, I'm just going to look at this honestly. I think the hearings have been very good. They've been serious. They've been, I don't know, you want to say down the middle, but they've been a somewhat honest look at what happened the evidence that they have in a narrative that almost is similar to the way a grand jury would be brought out. You're hearing one side of the story. I think it's a very convincing one and compelling one. I think that from my perspective, I hope that they have enough information that is legitimately worth an hour or two of people's time to go and do these primetime shows in August. But if they do, and if they continue to legitimately uncover new information, and they're getting leads and, and working with new sourcing. Politically, this is exactly what you want. You want news to break in September and October heading into an election. You've heard of the October surprise. You saw how Jim Comey kneecapped Hillary Clinton's campaign multiple times. You saw when WikiLeaks broke. It was right around that time period, steady drumbeat of information. So if this is to be of substance, John, I think that there is potential, maybe it influences one or two congressional races, but there is the potential for a positive impact here, especially if somebody like Trump announces that he's going to run in 2024 before these elections. I just worry that if they're trying to stretch this out for political purposes, that they could get a bit over their skis and and it could be negative. Even though this is a congressional body composed of politicians, I tend to look at it a little bit less through a partisan political lens. Obviously, the participation of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger demonstrates that there's a bipartisan component here. Furthermore, if you look at the strategy at play and how they've organized and refined their arguments and messages, you can see that they have made a very deliberate effort to try to complement the Republican Party as an institution and as a system of values at any opportunity. I'm thinking in particular of the hearings that have focused on Vice President Pence and the election supervisors in Arizona and Georgia. They've tried so hard... <laughs> to depict the Republican Party as a positive force in American politics. It seems to me like the goal is less to set up an election win and more to create an off-ramp for the Republican Party away from Trumpism. In the hearing that they had that focused on Vice President Pence, they kept on returning to the commonly understood Republican Party value system in a positive way. They really emphasized how Pence looked to the Bible for influence and inspiration as he made the decision not to participate in the effort to obstruct 
the electoral college vote count. And they depicted this as being such a positive thing. <laughs> they did the same when they spoke to the election supervisors from Georgia and Arizona. They talked about your values as a Republican, your values as a Christian American, um, all of the things that you know we kind of associate with the Republican Party. They depicted this in the, the most positive way possible. And they almost all of the witnesses that they've collected have been Republicans. And they've they've addressed this aspect of it. Even the witness that they had this week, who was someone who was caught up in pro-Trump, extreme right-wing, terroristic propaganda on the internet, they brought him there and they said, you know, you attacked the Capitol, but at heart, you're a guy who cares about your family and, and religion and and your job and your country, right? I mean, isn't that how you got caught up in this in the first place? They're trying so hard to demonstrate the positive core of the Republican Party. And they're going out of their way to do so. And that's why I look at this and I think, you know, I'm not really sure that this is really being designed for the election. I think that the goal here is a little bit different. I agree with, with how the committee has been handled up until this point. That is exactly what I was trying to highlight. If they don't legitimately have information that they are continuing to uncover in these potential August hearings, late August, September, potentially into October, they will run the risk of, whether it's true or not, looking partisan. And people like me who are cynical but believe in the work of the committee would be more likely to view the work at the end there uh, as partisan and then kind of reevaluate everything with a critical eye. Again, I think a lot has been brought forward that is important. I think they've done it in a way that has been upholding traditional Republican values. But you have to also realize you have one member, Kinzinger, who thank God we haven't seen much of, but he's been redistricted out. And then you have another member, Liz Cheney, who's going to likely lose to Harriet Hegman, who's just crazy. Let me say something actually very quickly then about that timeline factor. So yes, the hearings will are creeping closer to the election, but the reason for that is because partly they're expecting that the Democrats will lose control of the House. So the hearings will have to stop. Yes. Because the Republicans will be in the majority. There'll be no more committee. So they, yeah, they are trying to fit everything in before the elections. So in that sense, it is election influence but not necessarily because the hearings are being designed to influence the elections. The, the opposite on the cause and effect flowchart here. It's <laughs> the way around. It's just a happy coincidence you're saying. No, well, no, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> what I mean is that, yes, the timing of the elections are influencing this because they expect that the elections will end the hearing. So they have to fit them in before. I completely get that. You would think if they knew they had enough information, they would just announce a new series of hearings. Right now, they are debating whether or not to do an additional round of hearings. And the political person that I am, the cynical bastard that I am, I'm looking at this, it times up perfectly with the elections. They could do these hearings through August if they really were concerned. And they thought that by holding these hearings, they could get more information and potentially extended into September, just for them to say that they're thinking about it, they might do it at the end of August, and coincidentally might roll it into October. That sounds just a little bit too good to be true, because it's perfect timing for maximizing any potential political 
impact it could have on any race. I'm not saying that's what's happening, but I'm also not a partisan Democrat that's going to sit here and carry the water for the Democrats in the committee, even though I wholeheartedly agree with their work. I'm just saying they better not step over their skis and F it up because they've done great so far. Yeah. I mean, the committee is being run by people and by politicians, two categories of beings people. that are <laughs> that are prone to make mistakes. So there will be mistakes made. You talk about getting over your skis. I mean, I'm sure that the committee were disappointed that there was so much focus on this anecdote about Trump grabbing the steering wheel and that swallowed so many of the headlines when Although it was probably true. Probably was true. <laughs> it was an unfortunate that everyone was going um, Kevin Costner and JFK with the Zapruder film instead of talking about how Trump had tried to encourage armed, violent people to attend his rally, knowing he was going to send them on the Capitol and tried to remove security apparatuses that would prevent these armed people from attending. That should have been the headline out of out of that hearing instead of the thing about the steering wheel. But so maybe that's an example already of how the committee haven't been perfect. Overall, it's been quite impressive. They've been advised by a television producer, I think, someone who understands the medium, understands the format. They've benefited from having the ability to select the most important edited clips from the depositions instead of playing a full witness examination the way that we had to do during the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Exactly. And and I was going to say that this committee, it's been said on TV, it's the most organized and professional approach, largely void of partisan politics that we've seen. And I think it's much more impressive than that, than that first impeachment even that we saw because the second one was rushed and they didn't really have all that information. But I think that this committee to this point has been a resounding success. So I'll just have to see what happens next Thursday and if there actually is going to be more hearings. That concludes today's conversation. For more information or past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, we hope to hear from you soon.